know what we're going to read for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 23, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading the entire psalm this morning. The word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here ended the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 26, we'll be reading to verse 33 this morning. The word of our God. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here at the New Covenant meeting, please keep your place here in Matthew. This will be the primary portion of God's Word for our morning sermon. Which commandment does Jesus Christ repeat the most. You know, when Jesus is asked to talk about the great commandments, to summarize the law, he summarizes in terms of the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't have to read the gospel for very long to know that love is very, very important to Jesus. So we might think that's the most common command that Jesus gives us. But that's not it. So what is it? Turns out that it's the commandment that Jesus gives us in this morning's passage to be not afraid. Now, now I want to say that doesn't mean that not being afraid is more important than loving God and loving your neighbor. But the fact that Jesus repeats this particular commandment so frequently, I do think reveals something about us that we are very prone to be anxious and to fear. In fact, that we are afraid or tempted to be afraid far more frequently than we openly admit. Uh, young people fear not fitting in, uh, not finding a boy or a girl 
and there's studies that uh, when people get a little bit older, uh, they start to fear other things, like not getting ahead in a career, maybe never even getting off to a good start, uh, not making enough money. Um, often middle-aged people start to have a fear of being exposed. We call this imposter syndrome. You know, people are treating me pretty well, but when they really find out what I'm like and all the weaknesses I have, well, then I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, interestingly enough, many middle-aged people fear public speaking. And I actually suspect those two things join together. Right? Fear of public speaking has in, tied in it a fear of being exposed and maybe embarrassing yourself. Well, the bad news is, is when you become older, you might leave those fears behind and you get new ones. Older people fear having really significant health problems in old age, having their mental faculties decline, running out of money in retirement, or perhaps becoming isolated or lonely. And I trust that you can all add to that list, because the truth is, anxiety and fear is far more pervasive to the human condition than we are often willing to admit. We make matters even worse, if you were here with us last week, you heard Jesus telling the disciples something that's a little jarring. Uh, he's sending them out for the very first time on the very first missionary journey without them. And Jesus says, as you go out into the world as my representatives, that there are adversaries who will deliver you over to the courts. They will flog you in their synagogues. Uh, you, my representatives, are going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Yet he who endures to the end shall be saved. And suddenly I'm no longer so concerned about what school I'm going to get into or how much I'm getting ahead at work. Jesus has given me a list of entirely new and frankly really serious things for me to be concerned about. And then he tells us, but well, you have no reason to be afraid. Fear not. And in this morning's passage, he's going to give us four reasons to not be afraid, one right after another. He, he knows what a big deal this is to us, not only in our missionary endeavors, but actually in our Christian lives. Jesus knows what a big deal our anxieties and our fears are to us. And so he's backing up the truck, as it were, and says, I'm not just going to give you one reason, surely that would be enough. I'm going to give you four reasons why you do not need to be afraid of your men. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Second, fear God. Third, trust God. And fourth, remember that God is faithful. Let me do those few once again. First, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Second, fear God. Third, trust God. And fourth, remember that God is faithful. We begin with this wonderful truth that it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I wonder how many of you are familiar with that line. It's a line from a very famous sermon that Tony Popolo preached in the late 1980s. Um, it's 
kind of his, his uh, landmark thing. People know about Tony Capolo's teaching. Uh, they'll know this sermon. The idea behind it is actually very simple, but it's also very powerful. It starts with Good Friday. When you think about Good Friday, the disciples were utterly shattered. Their lives were completely devastated. To say nothing of Jesus' mother Mary. She, she, she and her unspeakable grief stood there weeping, watching her son be put to death in an entirely brutal way. See, on Good Friday, all the hopes and dreams of the disciples were utterly devastated. And they could not see through their grief and their tears. But at that very moment, Jesus was conquering Satan's sin and death on their behalf. That Jesus was liberating them from all their great enemies. Tony put it like this. It was Friday, and my Savior was dead on a tree. But that's Friday. Sunday's coming. Friday? Friday, Mary is crying her eyes out, and the disciples are running in every direction like sheep without a shepherd. But that's Friday. Sunday's coming. Friday, people were looking at the world and they were saying, as things have been, they will always be. You cannot change anything in this world for good. But they didn't know it was only Friday. Sunday's still coming. Friday, people were saying, darkness is going to rule the world. But they don't know it's only Friday. It's Friday, but Sunday is certainly coming. Isn't that precisely what Jesus is telling us here? See, on Good Friday, they couldn't see Sunday. And you're paying that price without being able to see either him or the kingdom. 
Um, think about how difficult this is to explain, not, not to your enemies, but to your unbelieving friends, people who like you, your family members. Um, even something as simple as, why do you care so much about what the Bible says? Like, that just doesn't make any sense to them. Why do you enjoy coming to church on Sunday morning when you can go to the beach or the country club instead? And um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest you try this, but, but imagine trying to explain to them that you give 10% or more of your income to advance the kingdom of God that they cannot see. Uh, the nicest thing that they're going to say to you is, that's kind of weird, right? And not everyone's going to be that nice. And to make matters worse, Jesus is telling us that this could be really costly. Not simply 10% of your income, it could be much worse. As I mentioned last week, faithfulness to Jesus might cost you your job. It might cost you educational opportunities. And it might cost you becoming the object of ridicule from some of your classmates, co-workers, and neighbors. Now, you have people that care about you, who love you, for whom it's unfathomable that you would pass up a job opportunity where you're going to make a lot more money and maybe be able to use your training in a, in a better way just to cling to the gospel with faithfulness. And, and the problem with that is, not, not those who persecute us, I think it's actually easier in some ways than those who, who hate us. The problem is, is because they love us and we care about them, we're going to be tempted to tone down the message that Jesus is telling us. We're going to be tempted to not walk with the fervency and the open boldness that says, I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And simply take what the world wants you to do to say, religion is this neat little thing I do in the corner that makes me better, makes me feel better. Jesus says, you can't do that if you're going to follow me. If you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross to follow me. You need to love me more than you love your parents. More than you love your children, your neighbors. More than you love getting ahead in this world. Well, how do we deal with that? The first thing that Jesus tells us for why we should not be afraid of those who are against us and why we should be bold with our faith is that what is hidden and invisible right now will be revealed and fully visible then. Right? Now people can't say it, but then everyone will when Christ comes again. Um, I don't know how you read that passage, but at first blush, being told that everything is going to be revealed may not be the thing that eases you of anxiety and fear. Um, the truth is, is that all of us have many, many things that we hope are going to remain secret forever. Right? But you have to put this passage in context. Jesus is not saying that pack of gum you stole in sixth grade is going to be broadly displayed along with every other sin you've ever committed at his, his second coming so that you can be deeply ashamed of all the horrible things you've done. That is not what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus actually in this context has two things in mind. First, in that day, he will be revealed. See, right now, when you're following Jesus, or like people think you're following some guy who just had to live 20 centuries ago. But when people on that day see Jesus, they will realize he is the Lord of glory. 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who spoke the universe into existence and who died for his people. In that day, nobody will look at you and say, I don't understand why you, knew, why you followed him with such zeal. In that day, everybody, that will say even us, everybody is going to say, I wish that I had followed Jesus more faithfully than I did. But second, you will also be revealed on that day. See, in Christ, you already been vindicated before God. We call that the doctrine of justification. Right? You've been vindicated before God because of who Christ is and what he has done. Your sins have been wiped away. You already have peace with God right now. But no one else can see that. But on that day, you will be revealed for being his faithful followers. And you will be rewarded for that. You, you will be identified as those who clung to Jesus in this life and thought that he was the most important thing, and in that day, everyone will realize you were right. There is a consequence to being gripped by these truths and how we carry out the mission that the Lord is entrusted with us with. Jesus says, when I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And when you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. See, see, Jesus is saying you can't be a secret disciple. Right? You can't just go off the corner and kind of mumble a little bit. I, I'm telling you things that are of great importance. Um, Lenzi puts it like this. The gospel cannot be suppressed. The disciples are to understand this thoroughly from the very start and are thus to speak out fearlessly, holding nothing back. Now, most of you are very good readers of the Bible. You understand you're not an apostle. And so there is a particular application of this truth to the first disciples as they're going out on the first missionary journey and certainly throughout their lives as they, they carry out the mission that God has entrusted to them. But in a broad way, this applies to all of us. Not that you all need to become street preachers or find a flat rooftop near you and stand on top of it and start proclaiming the gospel. But God has given each of you a distinct calling and a distinct set of gifts that you will live faithfully for him in your way as he's creating call. Right? He's not calling us all to do the same thing. But he is calling every one of us to live boldly and conspicuously for the sake of Jesus Christ in whatever situation he's placed. No secret disciples for Jesus, but bold. And boldness may not even mean you saying anything. People may just pick up on it because you're willing to live and act in a different way than they are. And they may come to you and ask, why are you doing that? And you can tell them that Jesus is more than worth it. I'll say more about this toward the end of the sermon this morning. But I do want to say right now that whenever you feel the pressure of criticism or the threat of losing things that you can see and touch for the sake of a kingdom you cannot see, please remember it's still Friday. But Sunday is coming. Everything which is now hidden will one day be fully revealed. In that day, everyone will wish that they had followed him with greater abandon, but you will not be able to do anything about it then. The only time you can choose to live with greater abandon is now, when you still have to walk by faith, 
and not by sight. Now, of course, if you live like that, with a genuine and godly zeal for the sake of the kingdom of God, you are going to suffer hostility for your faith. Uh, even if it's not intended to be hostile, your friends who care about you, they will not understand you, and they will try to pull you in a different direction. So Jesus says, in effect, let me give you another reason why you should not be afraid of mere men. You have something infinitely more to fear. Or more accurately, someone more infinitely worth fearing. Don't fear men. Fear God. Uh, look at verse 28 with me. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, because anxiety is common, we all try to help each other from time to time with our anxieties and fears. And, and the natural instinct for many of us is to try to tone down the thing that people are afraid of. It's not as big a deal as you think it is. I think parents particularly do this with children. But we do it with each other as well. And sometimes that might be appropriate, but I want you to see that it's not what Jesus says. Jesus does not minimize the suffering that his disciples are going to experience. Instead, Jesus opens with the fact that there are going to be men who want to kill them. Right? People can only kill the body, but there's going to be people who want to kill you. And that's not that surprising. Jesus, after all, is a crucified Savior. This is one of those funny things that most of us do this early in our Christian life. Uh, we oddly think that though we're following a crucified Savior, people ought to applaud us for doing so. Uh, but, you know, these early disciples were going out and proclaiming a crucified Savior as a true king and true lord of the world. Uh, they expected people were going to want to put them to death as well. In fact, the best that we can tell of all the apostles, only John, the beloved disciple, died in old age. And John, of course, was uh, martyred in exile to Patmos. See, Jesus is not raising a remote possibility for his disciples. In following and proclaiming a crucified Savior, they can expect hostility all the way up to people wanting to kill them. And we can see this looking at the early church, and we can see it by looking at resources around the early church. Uh, Josephus, for example, talks about James, the brother of Jesus. And James is very famous. He had this Jewish historian writing about it. Uh, Julian Anderson writes about him being a very common man. But he actually gives the account of, in 62 uh, AD, uh, James being executed for his faith, stoned to death, by his fellow Jews who would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, think about Paul. You know, when you read through um, the, the book of Acts, it's really an astonishing thing to see how often people are after Paul, how often the Lord delivers Paul out of the hands of people who not only want to harm him, but want to kill him. Ultimately, though, the Lord will deliver Paul not from his enemies in that way, but deliver him from this sinful world as he is beheaded in Rome. And then there's the Apostle Peter. Peter also suffers a great deal, has to flee for his life after he's been arrested. By good tradition, 
Peter was crucified. Uh, I said that the tradition, he was actually, according to the tradition, crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the same way as Jesus was because he was not worthy to die that sort of death. And whether upside down or right side up, what we can say is, is Peter's life involved a great deal of suffering and then a brutal death at the end. See, Jesus is not giving idle warning to his disciples when he says, people are out to get me. And yet he says, fear not. Well, that applies to everything in your lives as well. But why does Jesus say that here? Since evildoers are going to seek to execute the apostles, why in the world should they not be afraid of them? Jesus says, you shouldn't fear men because you have someone infinitely more worthy of being feared, and that is the living God. Beloved, everyone that exists, everyone that lives right now, is in fact going to exist forever. I don't want to say everyone's going to live forever. I don't want to dignify that, that torturous life of existing in hell forever under the wrath of Almighty God by calling that life. But every person you know is going to exist forever. Every person who has ever been born is going to exist forever. And in light of that, we ought to ask this question, why are we focused so much on things that are just for today or tomorrow, rather than focused on eternity? Yes, your present life is valuable, and you ought to protect and defend it. Right? Jesus is not minimizing that. We're commanded to look after our own lives. Hurry the larger catechism uh, of the commandment to not kill. It actually talks about not keeping our own lives and doing everything we can to preserve our own lives and the lives of other people. That's the commandment of the living God to you. Your life matters. But your physical life right now does not matter as much as your eternity does. It's actually an infinite difference between those two things. And even in terms of our present physical lives, it might be good for us to remind ourselves from time to time that every single heartbeat that we have, every breath that we take, is actually a gift from God in his hands. And that unlike mere human beings who have to dislike you at work, God can take your life before your heart has a single additional pain. And that's not what Jesus focuses on. It's true, your present physical life is in hands, but Jesus says something much more important. Your eternity is in his hands as well. If you want to know who to fear, fear him. If you want to know whose praise to seek, seek his. Now there's actually a kind of unusual construction here in the Greek. I'm not going to tie you up in the Greek, but I want you to get the idea behind it. I think this is helpful to you if you get this idea. It's, it's actually quite difficult to translate. You know, the ESV is a wonderful translation, um, but sometimes pastors have to fill it out a bit. When Matthew writes about fearing those who can only destroy the body, he uses a very unusual construction in Greek. And it means something like this. Don't shrink in fear from. That's that idea of shrinking from, away from. Don't shrink in fear from. I think that's helpful for us to get. Because the emphasis in this passage is not when people try to kill you on your feelings. 
It's not saying don't feel afraid. It's saying don't let that threat silence you. Don't let that threat drive you away from following Jesus with passion and commitment. Right? That, that's what's in view here. And naturally enough, when Matthew comes to talking about fearing God, actually Jesus here talks about fearing God, he doesn't use that construction. Because you, as God's people, have no need to shrink and fear away from God. Right? So, so there's two different constructions here in the Greek, and I think it's helpful for us to make that distinction. Right? So first, the main point is not that we should feel afraid of those who want to harm or kill us. The main point is that we should not allow them to silence us or lead us to back down from living boldly for Jesus. But second, there's an important contrast between the type of fear we're to not have with these men with the fear that we already have with God. Let me try to bring that out to you in kind of an over-translation, but this might get the idea across for you. Jesus says, do not shrink away in fear from those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Rather, hold him in reverential awe who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, as disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus is not telling us we have to fear God destroying us in hell forever. Right? By the blood of the Lamb, by Christ's own life, giving death in your place, he's already removed that possibility from you forever. But what Jesus is saying is in the midst of your struggles and hardships in the world, you ought to consider this. You are going to have enemies. You know, that's not the way you normally encourage you. You are going to have enemies. Make sure you have the right lungs. Are your enemies mere men whose breath is in their nostrils? Or are your enemies the living God? And you want to take great comfort that God is for you even when mere men are against you. So we're taught in Proverbs 14 about how the fear of the Lord is different than this fear of men. In Proverbs 14 we read this. In the fear of the Lord one has strong confidence and his children have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, yet one may turn away from the snares of death. Now, of course, only God in reverential awe and true genuine faith, those go hand in hand with each other. They can't have one without the other. Therefore, Jesus gives us a third reason why we should not be afraid. He tells us that instead of fearing mere men, we ought to place our confident trust in our Father, who is in heaven. Please look at verses 29 to 31 with me. 29 to 31. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, the word translated penny here, you think we cut that from old English. Uh, what it really means is uh, about a half an hour's work for someone who's entry level laborer. Uh, and Jesus is saying, you know, for half an hour's work, you could buy two sparrows. Well, that means you could buy one sparrow for 15 minutes' work. When you drive through at Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, 
You, you can't even buy a meal for yourself without much money. And Jesus is saying, no, those flowers have seemed so insignificant to you. By the way, they did. I mean, the rich bought these small birds as pets. Poor people bought them for food. But they weren't thinking like they were lambs or cows or something valuable. They, they were really insignificant. And Jesus says, you know those really insignificant sparrows? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father and have this care and superintendence. Not one of them. And you are worth so much more than a couple of sparrows. In fact, God has numbered the hairs on your head. He cares for everything that's on your life in ways that we wouldn't even think of. Now, I want to say there's actually a very practical application for you this week in terms of your prayer life. Uh, I know from my experience that sometimes Christians think that there are things that are too small to pray for. Right? Uh, you know, you pray for big things like the war in Ukraine and someone getting married and someone getting cancer. But I get this whole list of things, you know, kind of on my mind, I'm a little anxious about them. But I'm not going to bother God with them. They're not that significant. And see, we get that from the world. I, I don't mean in the worldly way, I mean, it's just our normal human experience. We have to value other people's times. So you cannot bring every problem to the principal of your school. You cannot bring every problem to your boss. If you do that, he's going to stop being your boss. You're going to get fired. They cannot put up with that. And then we, we take that principle and we bring it over to God. And we forget God is infinite. He, he can know everything at all times. It doesn't actually cause him to raise his sweat. And God is coming in here. He's actually not just counted the hairs on your head. He's numbered Remember, 623 matters to God. That's how much he cares about you. It's also detail. And of course, if we step back into the bigger picture, Jesus is saying, you don't need to be afraid. God cares for you like this. Nothing's going to happen to you apart from his loving care for your life. By the way, this is why the Apostle Paul can later tell the Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Well, the God cares much more about you than he cares about sparrows, and not one of them falls to the ground with part of his care. You can invest in his fatherly love for you. Therefore, trust him. So remember that everything will one day be revealed. Remember to fear God and remember to trust your Father in heaven. And finally, remember that God is faithful. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Beloved, if you accept attacks from people in this world because you are seeking the praise of your Father in heaven, you have a mediator that's interceding for you. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is always before the throne of his Father praying for you if you have placed your trust in him. Now, as we saw last week, God is always faithful to his own perfect an unchanging character. You know what that means? It means that Jesus, who is also God, is always faithful to his own unchanging and perfect character. 
for a little bit in the sermon, but I'm going to press this on you a bit. Because you should press this question upon your own conscience tonight, today. Is Jesus Christ confessing me? Is Jesus Christ confessing you as one of his sheep? For when Jesus looks to you before his Father in heaven, does he say, I never knew him? Please do not pass over that question. That's the most important question you're ever going to answer. Is Jesus right now confessing you before the Father, saying, that's one of my sheep for whom I gave my life? Or is Jesus saying, I never knew her, I never knew her? Here's the second question. How can I know? How can I know for sure the answer to that question? And Jesus gives us the answer. Everyone. Not some, not most, but everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Um, I know this is just English, and maybe it is words differently than I do, but I actually prefer the older confess rather than acknowledge. Uh, to my ear, knowledge sounds a little bit too much like I just got to nod in the Almighty's direction a little bit. And that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, go out in this world and you live for me. You live openly and boldly for me. And I will openly and boldly confess you before my Father. Jesus is calling us to openly, boldly, and publicly make clear that he is Lord in our lives. And if we do that, we're participating in the greatest mission that you could ever be a part of. Your lives will matter for right now, and they will matter forever. But you also have the comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you before his Father, who is in heaven. Let me put the matter as bluntly as I can. The problem is our natural tendency to fear mere human beings. If you're honest with yourself, that's true. And the sense that you want to puff themselves up on the brain, that's not me. I don't fear your people. The reality is we do. That's the problem. We fear mere human beings. Beloved, that's the problem, and we most certainly are not the solution. The solution is not to minimize the things that we're afraid of. As I mentioned, sometimes parents and friends seek to do this. It's really the wrong approach. Because everything I've mentioned this morning could happen in your life. And if it does, it will be really painful. Right? We ought not to minimize the threats either to ourselves or to those we love. The solution is not to puff ourselves up as though we will easily overcome these challenges through our own perseverance, hard work, and good attitude. Now, actually, uh, perseverance, hard work, and a good attitude are, are valuable things to cultivate in your life. But they're not going to work for this. In fact, if um, you think you're going to overcome this in your own power, you have another fear to add to your list that you're going to fail in doing that. And uh, I can help you with that. You are going to fail if you do that. You don't have the ability to pull this off. But Jesus does. Right? It's not about me, it's about him. Uh, the right solution is to pray with our old 
evening that is with King David this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And as we're called to pray in the 61st Psalm, when my heart is overwhelmed, please lead me to that rock which is higher than I. Now at the beginning of this morning's sermon, I did point out that when Jesus commands us to fear not, more than he commands us to do anything else, that this does not mean that you not fear what other men is more important than loving God and our neighbor. But now I've got to kind of square that message for you and point out that those two things actually belong together. Loving God and loving our neighbor goes hand in glove with not fearing mere men. As John tells us in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now that's beautiful. That's the answer the question. Whose love is John talking about? Is it your love for God that casts out fear? Or is it God's love for you? And I think actually, and John does this fairly frequently, he writes in a way so that we have to wrestle with that question and not just go check and know the answer. And actually, as John sometimes does elsewhere, I think he wants us to answer it both. As you grow in your love for God, and you love him more and more, and you love your neighbors truly with a godly love more and more, then the world will lose its allure for you. And the threats of the world will become far less terrifying for you because you know that they can never separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. So your love for God will minimize the fear that you have in this world, and yet God goes right out and tell us, but we love him because he first loved us. And I think that's really where the emphasis must fall on apprehending the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the God who spoke the universe into existence has set his love upon you in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has loved you since before the foundation of the world. In Christ, his love for you will never come to an end. Indeed, your Heavenly Father cares so much for you that he's numbered even the hairs in your head and he cares not one. Therefore, beloved, fear not. The worst thing that mere human beings can do to you is send you into the presence of your Father where God will wipe away every tear from your eye. Where you will be completely free, not only from the power, but from the presence of sin. Jesus says, fear not. Because when men do their worst to you, you can know this for certain. You will dwell in the house of your God forever. Amen.